Wow. That's a Hebrew word from the Bible. Not all of you may know that. But wow. And wow that uh, you've invited me back. Thank you, Craig Henry, for extending the invitation. I leapt at the invitation to come because it's such a a joy uh, to be always with you. It was 31 years ago that you let me be the first one to stand in this pulpit. 31 years ago. I recognize the creaks and the groans. (laughs) And now at my age, we're a duet. (sighs) And then it was 30 years ago, like Craig said, Liz and I stood right there with my kids, Stuart and Emily, right there. And we said to each other, we will. And we have ever since. We were loved by this church. Matter of fact, you loved us so much, you sent about a dozen with us on our honeymoon. (laughs) True story. I almost would ask for a show of hands of those of you who went, but you know who you are. And uh, and you you just always pull out the, the stops of hospitality for me. And Thanks, D.H., for the beautiful arrangement of Restless Weaver. And, and even you've even got the youth choir <laughs> singing today. So we're wealthy folk. Uh, I want to talk about a line. It's like it's in that Restless Weaver piece, Grant Us Your Creative Vision. Here's what I want to be talking about. Where you stand determines what you see. That's it. Where you stand determines what you see. Now, I know that's a very simple statement, but it's also a profound statement, at least to my eyes and ears. I remember when I first read it uh, many, many years ago uh, from the autobiography of uh, Robert McAfee Brown. As he told of his journey up to Union Seminary in New York and in the Pacific School of Religion out on the West Coast, and then as one of the Freedom Riders down through the old south, that he learned for him and for others where we stand determines what we see. I want to use that as a lens to look at the text that was read earlier. And thanks to the reader, I'm looking for her, who did such a good job reading uh, and interpreting, and thank you, interpreting that. Uh, That's the scripture I want to look at through the the lens of those words because I think where you stand is what you see. It's true for Bartimaeus on the margins. It's true for Jesus in the middle. And it's true for the crowd and the disciples in the mainstream between the two. Where we stand determines what we see. That's true for us. It's always been something that I have found as a way to be compassionate with myself because I can be pretty hard on myself, but also to be empathetic with others, given where I come from and where they come from or you come from, different demographics, different parts of the country, different races, different genders, education, age, experience. It all informs of where we stand, determines what we see and what we don't see. However, I need to make a confession, and it's been too long since my last confession. (laughs) I'm having trouble these days doing that. With reactivity seemingly being so high, 
with the common good and good common sense being so low, with polarized politics and politicians and petrified leadership, I just wish Jesus would step up to the plate and fix this mess. That's what we need. Jesus just picks something and start there. It could be with a warming climate. It could be with a lingering pandemic. It could be about voting right violations or the gun culture or that we're going backward when it comes to racial justice and equality. Just pick something, Jesus, and start fixing it there. Maybe the whole church should do as Bartimaeus did, just sit along the, 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 the margins and holler, and holler out our prayer. Pray and pray loudly. Have mercy, Jesus. Have mercy. Maybe there's something in this text that, though, I can learn in my confession. Maybe you too. So let's see if where we stand determines what we see. The text starts as was read in Jericho. Jericho is one of the world's oldest cities. If you're studying archaeology, Jericho is a good place to start. The world has passed through there, and the text passes through there with Jesus and the disciples. They enter, they're leaving, but as they're leaving, something happens. Not only are they bumping into each other and stumbling over the stones, talking and listening, questioning and answering, but then above all this commotion, maybe a cloud of dust even, there's a cry. A cry for help from a beggar who is blind, as the text identifies him. And the blind beggar calls him by name. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It goes out of the way to say that he's the son of Timaeus calling to the son of David. Maybe, how could a blind man know who it was coming by anyway? Maybe he asked or someone was saying, well, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And maybe he, like some people on the street, and the seemingly people on the street are pretty savvy about things, kind of like salesmen, as in you call the person's name when you want to sell the whatever to them. And so he calls him by name, not just, hey, you over there, Jesus, son of David have mercy on me. I think he was pretty savvy. I learned about, by proxy, about how savvy street people can be uh, from Liz, who uh, couldn't be here today. But when she was getting her MDiv at Old Southern Seminary, you have to qualify, you know, the time stamp it. Old Southern Seminary in Louisville. You know, anyway, uh, it, back then, and Larry McSwain was her professor of uh, social involvement, social action. And for extra credit, it was not required, but for extra credit, you could take the plunge. And the plunge was where he would take two, and they, he sent them two by two, like Jesus, and he takes them downtown Louisville and leaves them there to spend the night on the street. That was it. And he would give each of them a quarter in case they needed, when we still had pay phones, you know, uh, to call and, and if they were in trouble. And so Liz said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. If you know Liz, you, you know that that's exactly what she would do. So she and a partner go by the Salvation Army, get some old clothes, grease down their hair, 
you know, dirty up this, our impressions and projection of what street people look like. And Larry drops them off down there. And she said it opened their eyes. It opened her eyes. She remembers, for one thing, discovering the community of poverty that's there. And that people who are poor may know something that we who are affluent don't know. And that is how to depend on one another and create community with one another. Because she found that there. And in that, like one guy kind of took them in. He, they look so bad. He said, you two must be new to the street. Let me help out. And he said, he said, now look, go to the Catholic church for the soup kitchen on Tuesday and Thursday night. Don't go to the Methodist church. They don't serve good soup. Go to the Catholic church Tuesday and Thursday. And then Wednesday, go to the Episcopalian church's breakfast. They serve the, bre the best breakfast. Don't go to the Baptist. Go to the, you know. And so he was bringing them up in the way they should go. Another fellow kind of took them in, said, have you had anything to eat? And they hadn't. He said, well, here, have some of mine. And he shared his bottle of MD 2020 <laughs> with him, you know. I mean, that's a long way from, like, Silver Oak. Uh, and and so, so they, they, you know, took a little mad dog. And she said, you know, in the middle of the night, it, it kind of tasted like communion. <laughs> she said they spent the night in the park and were looking up. And I read the paper she wrote about it. And the, and the, the first line was, I never knew that a bank building looked so much like a cash register. <laughs> she got to see things from the other side of the plate glass window. And when they left that night, where they stood, they saw something different. The whole world looked different. The street savvy of old Bartimaeus knew to call Jesus by name and knew to keep on calling him. But you remember what the crowd did as he was hollering out. It says, many rebuked him and told him to be silent. Now, uh, I can tell that they weren't from Beamble Parish, which is where I'm from. I'm from Arcadia. And if if it had been from being able, the being able Parish translation would have just been, hush up. <laughs> but he didn't hush up. But they tell him to be silent. Because again, where they stood determined what they saw. And what they saw was a person of no value. God's love doesn't seek value. It, it creates value. God's love doesn't seek value, it creates value. It's not because we have value that we are loved, but because we are loved that we have value. William Sloan Coffin said that at Riverside Church years ago. When they tell him to hush up, when they tell him to tone down and turn away, he hollers out louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When I read that, I thought of the song, Ain't Nobody Gonna Turn Me Round. And when you marched in a Martin Luther King Day parade, I bet you've sung it. You've sung, We Shall Overcome, but I bet you've sung from the 60s, Ain't Nobody Gonna Turn Me Around, Turn Me Around, Turn Me Around. Ain't Nobody Gonna Turn Me Around. I'm gonna keep on a talking, keep on walking, marching to the freedom land. 
And I bet Bartimaeus did the same. You know, there are other stanzas to that. Ain't no fire hose going to turn me around. Ain't no Jim Crow going to turn me around. <clears throat> I bet Bartimaeus was saying, ain't no hushing crowd going to turn me around because I'm going to keep on longing, keep on calling, calling to that freedom man. And all of their attempts to turn him around didn't work. Text says, and he throws off his mantle and leaps up. My hunch is he was using his mantle out in front like a street person would use a styrofoam cup that, that says, help me. That it was on this mantle, this blanket, that coins would, coins would uh, echo when they were tossed on. But I see that him tossing it off like in a poetic expression by the writer saying that his livelihood was no longer going to define him on the margin, but rather he was going to get in the middle of things, and he goes to Jesus. Jesus has said, call him. He gets called. He goes there. I'll come back to that in a minute. Remind me if I forget about it. But when he goes to see Jesus, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I don't know if there's a list of dumb questions in the Bible, but if there is, that's got to be in the top two or three. I mean, apologies to Jesus. Uh, I'm sure that somebody was writing the Bible and they're going, we, we can't put down that Jesus said, well, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, and somebody said, oh, you know, Jesus said it, I believe it, that settles it. Go ahead, write it down, we'll, we'll deal with it later. Actually, it said several, Jesus says it several times, but the most recent time he says it is only 15 verses before it was read a moment ago in this text. He says it to James and John. You know, Peter, James, and John are like in the, in the top 25 percentile of the disciples. They're always the, uh, you know, the, the leaders of the pack. Well, James and John go to Jesus. See, they didn't, they didn't need to holler out and finally get, get their way through the crowd because they had privilege and access. So they go to Jesus un, uh, you know, without permission and, Jesus, and say to Jesus, won't you do, do whatever we ask of you? Jesus says, and there's the question, what do you want me to do for you? Now in that poetic power, that the writer puts those two questions within 10 or 15 verses of each other. That it's the same question. But what James and John say do is that we want something no one else has. We want to be only at the left and at the right hand. Nobody else can sit there. We want that. They asked Jesus for what no one else had. But what did Bartimaeus do? He asked Jesus for no more than what everyone else already had. The gift of sight. That's what he said. He was living on the margin, a life that was separate and unequal. And that's all he asked. I want to be equal and have sight like everybody else. What does Jesus say? Jesus says very simply, go your way, your faith has made you well. That's it. Have you ever noticed that when people come to Jesus, they leave with more self 
than they came. That in an odd way, he doesn't make them dependent on him. He says, you've already got what you already need. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. A cult leader takes self. But this Messiah affirms self. So that when Jesus isn't around anymore, Bartimaeus is going to say, you know, I've got this problem, but, you know, he said, my faith has made me well. I'm, I'm going to trust in my history, mine and God. Made you well. And that word sozo, that little Greek word, means complete. It's more than just maybe the eyeballs opening, but life coming together. And he sees life different because he's standing now in a different place. But that part I need to come back to. I left out something. Jesus involved the crowd. Remember that? Bet you were thinking that. The crowd was a part of the story because Jesus stops when he keeps on hollering. And Jesus turns to the crowd and says, call him. Call him. And they do. Now, why didn't Jesus just go, hey, you know, you on the side, come over here. Or why didn't Jesus say, excuse me, everybody, walks over, gives him his hand, says, hello, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, what do you want? You know. But Jesus says to the crowd and the disciples, call him. And boy, does the crowd change their tune. You know, formerly it was hush up, be silent. And now it is uh, take heart, rise up, he's calling you. Now isn't that something? I even think that is the greater miracle here. That suddenly this crowd that was saying, hush up, is starting to talk like Jesus. Rise up, take heart, he's calling you. Uh, Jesus chose to, to include the crowd in his story and to be transporters of the healing that was coming. Said in some other ways, Jesus turns the crowd into a congregation. Said another way, Jesus didn't just tolerate the crowd, he ordained them. Ordained. Now that's a word that you heard recently, didn't you? You heard it right here. You heard it right there. You heard it at the organ. D.H. heard it. When last week you ordained, what, what does that mean? It, it means, you know, to be set apart, to carry on a ministry, a connection. And that's what Jesus ordained the crowd to do. Suddenly, they stand in a different place and they see something different. Formerly, this marginalized man that was of no value suddenly had great value like William Sloan Coffin said, because Jesus was calling him. Ordained. You know, in, in our Baptist tradition, I think this is some of the best part, that, that there's a reciprocity in this ordination stuff. That not only did you ordain DH, but you reboot your own ordination as the ordaining. So in a way, who is the ordained? And who is the ordaining? And you shared in that. D.H., uh, a few years ago, we were ordaining a young man in the church named Barry. And uh, 
we were ordaining on a Sunday morning, doing the laying on of hands and all of that. And it was, it was right, I guess, during, uh, excuse me, uh, Albanian war. And we had Albanian refugees, a whole family, mother, father, two kids, that had come, that we had taken on uh, to, to be a sanctuary for them. And uh, they were staying in the home of one of our parishioners. And uh, Halusi Shabani was the dad's name. And they would come to church on Sundays. And they'd only been here like three or four weeks. Now, one, they were Muslim. And two, they spoke no English. And they had this dictionary, translation dictionary of Albanian to uh, uh, English. And so uh, it, was, it was real awkward to communicate. But they, they were there. And we were ordaining uh, Barry that day. And then it came time, all the congregation gets up and goes by and lays hands. Oh, I probably can't do that during COVID, but uh, that's, what, that's what we did. You, know, you lay hands and you whisper a prayer or an affirmation. And so the Shabanis were sitting there you know, kind of watching all this happen, but not knowing what was going on. And then when their row got up, they got up and they come forward. And you know, it can be an emotional thing to ordain both for the ordinan and for the ordaining body because you know this person, you've known this person, you've reared D.H., you know? Brought him up in the way he should go. Nobody's surprised. Yeah, we knew he was called before he did, you know? And so uh, there were people crying that day and, and Kleenexes and wiping of tears and, and and so the Shabanis get up and they see all this. They walk through the line. They put hands on Barry's shoulder. They say something and go back and sit down. Afterward, at lunch, one of the members said, what do you think was going on and what did you say? It took a while to figure it all out with the translation, but basically this was it. They said, we knew something very sad had happened to this person. <laughs> And we wanted to go by and say, we are so sorry. We are so sorry. Right after the Shabani's walked through was uh, Barry's daughter, and a five-year-old daughter, and her best friend, Paige. And they came through, and Paige, five-year-old, puts her hands on her best friend's shoulder, uh, dad's shoulders and goes, um, have fun. So D.H. between, we are so sorry. You're, you're among the collect called now. Uh, but have fun. I think that's a pretty good le left and right hand of ordination. I can even see it among this crowd when Jesus ordained them. Rise up. You know, take heart. He's calling you. I hear that in those. So, you too are called. I remind you of that. Where you stand determines what you see and with whom you stand. Like with your partner church in Cuba, Emmanuel Iglesia. Like with um, those seeking racial justice and equality. Like the Alliance of Baptists who, through this congregation, helped take a stand about uh, gender equity and also the blessing of same gender unions years ago that we thought just may tank the alliance. It's not only where you stand, but with whom you stand determines what you see.
And so, I know what's going to happen this week to you and to me. The world is going to knock at the door, your door. You'll open the door, there'll be the world, and the world will say, why don't you come over to my place for a cup of despair and a piece of pessimism pie? And you'll say, no thanks. You see, I went to church on Sunday, and uh, before we left, we rose up, we took heart, because we've been called. That's where we stand, and that's what we see. Amen. <laughs>